Good evening. Happiness in Israel as a new government is announced. President Biden makes a speech after meeting with international leaders at the G7 and talk of the end of the rent freeze moratoriums. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Monday, June 14th, 2021. And reality winner 29, a former government contractor who was given the longest federal prison sentence imposed for leaks to the news media, has been released from prison to home confinement. She pleaded guilty in 2018 to a single count of transmitting national security information. Winner was sentenced to five years and three months in prison. Her release was hailed as a cause for celebration after advocates had spent years fighting for her release or a pardon. Her lawyer, Allison Grinter Allen, said in a statement that Winner and her family are working to heal the trauma of incarceration and build back the years lost. The former Air Force translator worked as a contractor at a national security agency office in Augusta, Georgia, where she printed a classified report and left the building with it. Winner told the FBI she mailed the document to an online news outlet, although the document was not revealed. Revealed in the case against her, Winner's June 2017 arrest occurred the same day the news agency The Intercept reported on a secret NSA document. It detailed Russian government efforts to penetrate a Florida-based supplier of voting software and the accounts of election officials ahead of the 2016 presidential election. Winner had unsuccessfully tried to shorten her sentence by seeking a pardon from President Donald Trump, who she once mocked on social media as a soulless ginger orangutan. And crowds went wild on the streets of Tel Aviv yesterday after the Israeli Knesset approved a new coalition government, ending Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's 12-year rule. The ground was littered in party snow sprayed on the celebrating crowd who danced and cheered. The new coalition government consists of eight political factions, including right-wing Yamina, centrist Yesh Atid, and Arab Ram, and other parties. Meanwhile, Israel's new government on Monday approved a contentious parade by Israeli nationalists through Palestinian areas around Jerusalem's old city, setting the stage for possible renewed confrontations just weeks after an 11-day war with Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip. Hamas called on Palestinians to resist the march. Scheduled for Tuesday, the parade creates an early test for the fledgling government led by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. And President Joe Biden spoke today after meeting world leaders at the G7 conference in England. He focused on the growing strains with Russia and listed the accomplishments of the G7 after their first meeting in two years because of COVID restrictions. I'm not looking for conflict with Russia, but that we will respond if Russia continues its harmful activities. And we will not fail to defend the transatlantic alliance or stand up for democratic values. As allies, we also affirmed our continued support for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. We agreed to keep consulting closely on nuclear deterrence, arms control, and strategic stability. And there was a strong consensus in the room among the leaders in that meeting on Afghanistan. Our troops are coming home we agreed that our diplomatic, economic, and humanitarian commitment to the Afghan people and our support for the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces will endure to ensure that Afghanistan never again 
becomes a, a safe haven for attacks on our countries, even as we take on terrorist networks in the Middle East and Africa. And I'm deeply gratified that as an alliance, we adopted a far-reaching plan to make sure NATO can meet the challenges that we face today and in the future, not yesterday. The NATO 2030 agenda. And that we agreed to fully resource that agenda. We talked about the long-term systemic challenges that China's activities pose to our collective security today. We agreed to do more to enhance the resilience of our critical infrastructures around the world, including trusted telecommunications providers, supply chains, and energy networks. We also endorsed a new cyber defense policy to improve the collective ability to defend against counter threats from state and non-state actors against our networks and our critical infrastructure. And we adopted a climate security action plan, which several years ago people thought we would never would do for reducing emissions from NATO installations and adapting to the security risks of climate change. And finally, we agreed that among the most important shared missions is renewing and strengthening the resilience of our democracies. Biden issued a warning to Russian President Vladimir Putin ahead of a Wednesday summit that the death of jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny would hurt Russia's relationship with the rest of the world. I'm going to make clear to President Putin that there are areas where we can cooperate if he chooses. And if he chooses not to cooperate and acts in a way that he has in the past relative to cybersecurity and some other activities, then we will respond. We will respond in kind. There need not be, we should decide where it's in our mutual interest in the interest of the world to cooperate and see if we can do that. And the areas where we don't agree, make it clear what the red lines are what it will mean for the U.S.-Russia relationship if Alexei Navalny were to die or be killed in prison. Navalny's death would be another indication that Russia has little or no intention of abiding by basic fundamental human rights. It would be a tragedy. It would do nothing but hurt his relationships with the rest of the world, in my view, and with me. President Biden, in January, Navalny flew to Russia from Berlin, where he had spent nearly half a year recovering after he had been allegedly poisoned last summer. He was arrested at passport control as soon as he landed. He's been on and off hunger strike in Russian prisons, and they're growing fears he won't get out alive. The G7 members parallel the most powerful members of the NATO alliance, and NATO issued a joint statement today claiming Russia's, quote, aggressive actions constitute a threat to Euro-Atlantic security. NATO cited Moscow's military buildup, its use of cyber attacks and hybrid warfare, the annexation of Crimea and Kremlin-funded, what they call the Kremlin-funded disinformation campaign. 
as some of those actions. Russia has repeatedly blamed the West for the rising tensions, claiming the Western countries have violated a verbal agreement after the collapse of the Soviet Union, not to move the alliance closer to Russian borders. The new NATO members since then include Poland, Romania, Slovakia, and other Central European countries along Russia's borders. And a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention federal eviction moratorium doesn't end until June 30th, but evictions are already starting to rise across many states in this country. Evictions are on the rise in particular in states like Tennessee, where courts struck down elements of the moratorium recently, and the housing market is heating up as Tennessee emerges from its COVID lockdown. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio had some words on the subject today after candidate Eric Adams suggested recently it was time to raise rents in New York City in his words, to help small landlords. important to think about everyone in the equation. What our Rent Guidelines Board does, which it didn't used to do in the past, is it looks at the whole picture. It looks at what tenants are going through. It looks at what building owners are going through, everyone's situation and challenges, costs, everything. And it's a methodical process. So that's the way it should be done. It's important to do things based on the facts. What do you make of sort of a, a repudiation on the rent freeze policy from one of the leading mayoral candidates in the race? I don't hear it as that at all. I really don't. What I hear him to say is recognize that a lot of the building owners are small building owners, are people of color in communities of color who you know have struggled to buy a building and keep it up and keep it going. A lot of these are family enterprises, and that needs to be taken into account, too. And I think that's right. We got to think about everything. And that's the mayor. A House subcommittee in Washington is holding hearings addressing the issue today. Chair Steve Cohen, Democrat of Tennessee, laid out the problem. Self-help evictions where landlords just ignore the law. Even before the pandemic began, a lack of affordable housing and evictions had been longstanding issues. They've been longstanding issues in America forever. According to 2018 statistics, nearly half of all renter households were rental cost burdened paying more than 30% of their income towards rent. And on average, between 2000 and 2016, more than 3.6 million eviction cases were filed in the U.S. per year. Early on in the pandemic, experts warned how the loss of jobs and income due to coronavirus public health measures could lead to an eviction crisis. In response, the federal government took action. Congress passed the CARES Act, which included an eviction moratorium. After that moratorium expired in the summer of 2020, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued an eviction moratorium which has been extended several times, both legislatively and administratively, is now slated to expire at the end of the month. While these moratoria were not perfect, they offered many people a reprieve and helped them stay in their apartments and houses during a time when the best thing we could do for our health and the health of others was to stay at home. Unfortunately, since these moratoria were put in place, there have been reports across the country of landlords engaging in unlawful evictions in order to circumvent them. These so-called self-help evictions can generally be defined as actions or courses of conduct by a landlord intended to oust the tenant without the benefit of a judicial proceeding. They can take many forms, from a landlord changing the locks on an apartment or cutting utilities to refusing to make essential repairs or moving a tenant's furniture and belongings out of their apartment. Tenants facing these self-help evictions often have limited avenues for recourse, especially low-income tenants who do not have the resources to afford legal representation or fight that eviction in court. These actions by unscrupulous landlords to circumvent federal moratoria, which are meant to protect public health, are appalling and merit a response. That's why I introduced H.R. 1451, the Emergency Eviction Enforcement Act of 2021, to address self-help evictions during national emergencies. 
And that was Representative Steve Cohen of Tennessee. NAACP Representative Hillary Shelton says it's people of color who are suffering the most from these self-help evictions. In light of the massive wave of evictions and the potential for millions more due to the course of the pandemic and the slow economic recovery, the federal government stepped up and implemented a moratorium on evictions to provide much needed temporary relief for families in distress. Though this moratorium was a necessary step to cushion the cushioning blow or the crucial blow of the American families that can only be looked at as a band-aid solution at best. Despite its good, this wall of protection is slowly crumbling as a federal district court in Memphis, Tennessee, recently ruled in favor of the landlords and allowed eviction to proceed. These self-help evictions were landlords taking it upon themselves and circumventing eviction moratoriums to remove tenants from their dwellings are displacing already vulnerable families and once again, disproportionately hurting people of color throughout the country. As long as these moratoriums are in place, tenants should remain temporarily protected for the fear of becoming homeless and thrown even more deeply into the spiral of poverty. And that's NAACP's Hillary Shelton. And Representative Deborah Ross of North Carolina told the story of one of her constituents. A constituent from my district lost her job during the pandemic, and she and her baby girl were evicted from their home just before Christmas because they were $380 short on rent. They didn't know where to go, and they didn't know about the eviction moratorium. Another constituent and her two children were evicted from their home despite being up to date on rent and providing the landlord with a CDC declaration form temporarily halting residential evictions. However, their lease was up and their landlord refused to offer renewal. This is a reality that Americans across the country are facing and, as I said, were facing before the pandemic. And University of Memphis professor Katie Ramsey Mason laid out some of the illegal tactics used by some landlords. Self-help can take many forms. It can be something as extreme as a landlord hiring a team of private security guards, showing up at a tenant's home, and forcibly removing the tenant and his or her belongings from the property. It can include um, changing the locks while the tenant is away from home, at the grocery store, at work, picking up kids from daycare, whatever the case may be. It can also include things like calling the utility company and asking for the electricity and the gas and the water to be shut off or simply threatening a tenant to the point that they actually choose to leave the property because they feel unsafe. All of those are situations that we hear about that we, as you pointed out, have heard about prior to the pandemic, during the pandemic, and unfortunately, I'm sure will continue to happen as the pandemic ends. While every state does allow tenants who have been illegally evicted to sue their landlord proactively to claim damages, on a practical standpoint, for many tenants, that's simply not possible. And that's University of Memphis professor Katie Ramsey Mason. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Victims and relatives of victims of police brutality in Chicago say that 
Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor, is a bad guy, you know, and he should be not allowed to become the ambassador to Japan. They released a joint statement uh, last week against the reported plan by President Biden to nominate Emanuel to the U.S. ambassadorship. The 28 signers of the statement declared the possibility that Rahm Emanuel will become the U.S. ambassador to Japan is abhorrent to those of us who continue to mourn the loss of our loved ones due to police violence that they say he aided and abetted as mayor of Chicago. Emmanuel was mayor of the city from 2011 to 2019. Kenyatta Brand is sister of Rekia Boyd, who was killed by off-duty officer Dante Servin in 2012. Reportedly, Servin was drinking, then driving. When he saw young people in a park, he shot at one of the young men in the park, killing Rekia. State's attorney Anita Alvarez allegedly undercharged him, manslaughter instead of first or second degree murder. And then the judge... Use that as an excuse to pronounce a mistrial instead of requiring the state to charge him correctly. Brand spoke with WBAI. She was out with some friends, and I guess that was a night that it was really hot. So everybody was just hanging outside, and the police officer came, and he had some confrontation with them, and he shot her. He shot. She just wound up getting hit in the back of the head. He didn't shoot just once. He shot multiple times. He claimed that somebody had a gun and nobody had a gun. No one had a gun. And he was drinking, the officer? That's what we heard, that he was drinking or he was already intoxicated, and he was in his personal vehicle, from what I heard from people that were out on the street. And I heard that he was coming down the street the wrong way. Why did he decide to interact with this group of people at night? At the time, he lived right there. He had an apartment or apartment building. I'm not sure what it was. My brother actually went and spoke to him personally, but he lived right there on the corner by the park. If you live by a park, there's going to be children outside, people coming home, whatever the case may be. He had some problem with people being in the park and hanging out and talking. Yeah. Was he arrested? He went to the police station from what I heard. I was in the hospital with my sister. From what I heard from other people, not from the news, because sometimes the news don't get it, don't get the story straight. He went to the police station and he was out within like less than an hour or so. What was he charged with and there was a trial? He was charged with involuntary manslaughter or something like that. But the judge said that that was the wrong charges. He was supposed to be charged with murder. Anita Alvarez gave him the wrong charges. What happened when he actually went to trial? The verdict was he was set free. They were going to fire him, I think, in 2015, but he resigned or something, and he was able to get his pension. And then in 2019, he wanted to get his record expunged because supposedly he couldn't get a job or whatever the case may be. But Kim Fox, the new state's attorney, had denied it. The mayor at the time, Rahm Emanuel, he called for this officer to be fired. Isn't that something people wanted to hear or is there more to it? It shouldn't have took them three years to do that. They had a lot of things on him. They had a lot of, he was always terrorizing people in their neighborhood and everything. How did this whole thing make you feel? It made me feel pissed. I'm still pissed. It's starting to affect me now because so many things are happening now. With the George Floyd, Sandra Bland, it's affecting me now. It's almost as if I have PTSD now every time I see a police officer because there's so many things happening and they're doing so many wrong things. The lack of accountability. And, it's, and we, it's like 
they being slapped on the hands or they putting blindfolds over our eyes like you didn't see that. It's a bunch of bullshit, you know. It's the lack of, of accountability. He got slapped on the wrist, said, don't do it again. Go sit down until this dies down and then go do what you need to do. That's how I feel. Now, with uh, the mayor at the time, Rahm Emanuel, apparently about to be appointed to be uh, ambassador to Japan, a very high level position where he'll be feeded and treated in, as a as a very important person from now on. What does that make you feel? It's a slap in my face. He came here, did his dirt, he covered up Laquan McDaniel, and he knew he wasn't going to get another term as being mayor. He sat down for a little while, and I'm really pissed. All the talk about Chicago, the crime rate, what is the way out of this circle of violence? People need to be more hands-on. I've lived in Chicago for a long time. The city is my life. I love Chicago. Chicago is a beautiful place. It's all type of people that suffer in Chicago, not just blacks. It's not just black people. It's a lot of people that suffer in Chicago. A lot of these news people, they put up a front and just lie and say, oh, they've been there or whatever, and they don't know. If you're not from the hood or from Chicago, you don't know. Crime happens in Evanston. Crime happens on the north side of Chicago, because I know because I live there. People's houses are being broken into, but it's not being paraded as much as it is in the city. Kenyatta Brand is sister Rakia Boyd, who was killed by off-duty officer Dante Servin in 2012. She spoke with WBAI from her home in Chicago. And from the second city to New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio had the most recent COVID indicators for New York today. Indicators today are good, and it's because of all those heroes who helped us fight through and because you went out and got vaccinated. So number one, daily number of people admitted to New York City hospitals for suspected COVID-19 Today's report, 50 patients, 5-0, 50 patients, with a confirmed positivity level, again, low, 9.62%. Hospitalization rate per 100,000, 0.43. So those are great now. New reported cases on a seven-day average. Today's report, 193 cases. And number three, this is a great one, percentage of people testing Positive citywide for COVID-19, seven-day rolling average, 0.59%, lowest we've ever been. Let's go even lower, go out and get vaccinated. As a mayor, he was asked about the so-called breakthrough COVID infections, people who get sick even after they've been vaccinated. Commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, Dr. David Chokshi, responded. Um, let me start with the big picture, which is that uh, the number of serious infections leading to either hospitalization or death among vaccinated people is very small. We're talking about a minuscule percentage of both the overall number of cases as well as the number of people who are fully vaccinated. You know, when we look at people who are hospitalized across New York City, virtually all of them are not yet fully vaccinated, meaning they're unvaccinated. We will see some cases resulting in hospitalization or even death among fully vaccinated people, but these are very rare exceptions to the overall rule. All of the authorized vaccines offer strong protection, particularly against severe illness, and that's why we need to get every single person who is currently eligible vaccinated. Dr. David Choksi. And finally, it's the summer of the youth in New York City. That's according to the New York Times. And it was definitely a youth mecca in Washington Square Park this weekend as the youth enjoyed, well, 
being young. A reporter asked de Blasio if he was planning a stricter response after backing off a 10 p.m. curfew a week ago. The mayor says the cops will take it as it comes. All parks have a closing time. Let's start with that. We've seen historically that closing times are implemented pretty smoothly all over the city, parks department. And if sometimes they need some NYPD help, that's fine. We've had some particular issues for a limited period of time in Washington Square Park. And there's been an effort to figure out the right approach. When the park can be open a little later, that's great. And so long as it's something that doesn't interfere with the quality of life of the community. So that's being assessed constantly by the Parks Department and the NYPD. But they simply determine the closing time that makes sense and they act on it. When they did try and enforce it, there was a lot of pushback from some of the kids, the the young adults who were in the parks. Reassessing, reassessing, we've been dealing with this now for two weeks. Well, that's not a lot of time, respectfully. I really think that what the Parks Department and NYPD are trying to do is reset the balance properly. Obviously do it in a way that involves communication and not conflict. They're experimenting with different approaches to get it right. And we've had a number of nights where things went pretty smoothly. We had a few nights where they didn't. But it's going to, I think, lead to a natural outcome here. We're going to keep working on it, led by Parks Department, determine the right closing time. And I think we'll get into a pattern that works pretty soon. Mayor de Blasio. And that's some of the news for Monday, June 14, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.